This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Heretics by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter 15 On Smart Novelists and the Smart Set. In one sense, at any rate, it is more valuable to read bad literature than good literature. Good literature may tell us the mind of one man, but bad literature may tell us the mind of many men. A good novel tells us the truth about its hero, but a bad novel tells us the truth about its author. It does much more than that. It tells us the truth about its readers, and, oddly enough, it tells us this all the more, the more cynical and immoral be, the motive of its manufacturer. The more dishonest a book is as a book, the more honest it is as a public document. A sincere novel exhibits the simplicity of one particular man. An insincere novel exhibits the simplicity of mankind. The pedantic decisions and definable readjustments of man may be found in scrolls and statute books and scriptures. But men's basic assumptions and everlasting energies are to be found in penny dreadfuls and half-penny novelettes. Thus a man, like many men of real culture in our day, might learn from good literature nothing except the power to appreciate good literature. But from bad literature he might learn to govern empires and look over the map of mankind. There is one rather interesting example of this state of things, in which the weaker literature is really the stronger, and the stronger the weaker. It is a case of what may be called, for the sake of an approximate description, the literature of aristocracy, or, if you prefer the description, the literature of snobbishness. Now, if anyone wishes to find a really effective and comprehensive and permanent case for aristocracy, well and sincerely stated, let him read not the modern philosophical conservatives, not even Nietzsche. Let him read the Bowbell's novelettes. Of the case of Nietzsche I am confessedly more doubtful. Nietzsche and the Bowbell's novelettes have both obviously the same fundamental character. They both worship the tall man with the curling mustaches and Herculean bodily power and they both worship him in a manner which is somewhat feminine and hysterical. Even here, however, the novelette easily maintains its philosophical superiority, because it does not attribute to the strong man those virtues which do commonly belong to him, such virtues as laziness and kindliness, and a rather reckless benevolence, and a great dislike of hurting the weak. Nietzsche, on the other hand, attributes to the strong man that scorn against weakness which only exists among invalids. It is not, however, of the secondary merits of the great German philosopher, but of the primary merits of the Bowbell's novelettes, that it is my present affair to speak. The picture of aristocracy in the popular sentimental novelette seems to me very satisfactory as a permanent political and philosophical guide. It may be inaccurate about details such as the title by which a baronet is addressed, or the width of a mountain chasm which a baronet can conveniently leap. But it is not a bad description of the general idea and intention of aristocracy as they exist in human affairs. 
The essential dream of aristocracy is magnificence and valour. And if the family herald's supplement sometimes distorts or exaggerates these things, at least it does not fall short in them. It never errs by making the mountain chasm too narrow, or the title of the baronet insufficiently impressive. But above this sane, reliable old literature of snobbishness, there has arisen in our time another kind of literature of snobbishness, which, with its much higher pretensions, seems to me worthy of very much less respect. Incidentally, if that matters, it is much better literature. But it is immeasurably worse philosophy, immeasurably worse ethics and politics, immeasurably worse vital rendering of aristocracy and humanity as they really are. From such books as those of which I wish now to speak, we can discover what a clever man can do with the idea of aristocracy. But from the family herald supplement literature, we can learn what the idea of aristocracy can do with a man who is not clever. And when we know that, we know English history. This new aristocratic fiction must have caught the attention of everybody who has read the best fiction for the last fifteen years. It is that genuine or alleged literature of the smart set, which represents that set as distinguished not only by smart dresses, but by smart sayings. To the bad baronet, to the good baronet, to the romantic and misunderstood baronet, who is supposed to be a bad baronet, but is a good baronet. This school has added a conception undreamed of by the former years, the conception of an amusing baronet. The aristocrat is not merely to be taller than mortal men and stronger and handsomer, he is also to be more witty. He is the long man with the short epigram. Many eminent and deservedly eminent modern novelists must accept some responsibility for having supported this worst form of snobbishness, an intellectual snobbishness. The talented author of Dodo is responsible for having, in some sense, created the fashion as a fashion. Mr. Hitchens, in The Green Carnation, reaffirmed the strange idea that young noblemen talk well, though his case had some vague biographical foundation and in consequence an excuse. Mrs. Craigie is considerably guilty with the matter, although, or rather because, she has combined the aristocratic note with a note of some moral and even religious sincerity. When you are saving a man's soul, even in a novel, it is indecent to mention that he is a gentleman. Nor can blame in this matter be altogether removed from a man of much greater ability, and a man who has proved his possession of the highest human instinct, the romantic instinct. I mean Mr. Anthony Hope. In a galloping, impossible melodrama like The Prisoner of Zenda, the blood of kings fanned an excellent, fantastic thread or theme. But the blood of kings is not a thing that can be taken seriously. And when, for example, Mr. Hope devotes so much serious and sympathetic study to the man called Tristram of Blent, a man who throughout burning boyhood thought of nothing but a silly old estate, we feel even in Mr. Hope the hint of this excessive concern about the oligarchic idea. It is hard for any ordinary person to feel so much interest in a young man whose whole aim is to own the house of Blant at the time when every other young man is owning the stars. Mr. Hope, however, is a very mild case, and in him there is not only an element of romance,
but also a fine element of irony which warns us against taking all this elegance too seriously. Above all, he shows his sense in not making his nobleman so incredibly equipped with impromptu repartee. This habit of insisting on the wit of the wealthier classes is the last and most servile of all the servilities. It is, as I have said, immeasurably more contemptible than the snobbishness of the novelette, which describes the nobleman as smiling like an Apollo or riding a mad elephant. These may be exaggerations of beauty and courage, but beauty and courage are the unconscious ideals of aristocrats, even of stupid aristocrats. The nobleman of the novelette may not be sketched with any very close or conscientious attention to the daily habits of noblemen, but he is something more important than a reality. He is a practical ideal. The gentleman of fiction may not copy the gentleman of real life, but the gentleman of real life is copying the gentleman of fiction. He may not be particularly good-looking, but he would rather be good-looking than anything else. He may not have ridden on a mad elephant, but he rides a pony as far as possible, with an air as if he had. And upon the whole, the upper classes not only especially desire these qualities of beauty and courage, but in some degree at any rate, especially possess them. Thus there is nothing really mean or sycophatic about the popular literature, which makes all its marquees seven feet high. It is snobbishness, but it is not servile. Its exaggeration is based on an exuberant and honest admiration. Its honest admiration is based upon something which is, in some degree, at any rate, really there. The English lower classes do not fear the English upper classes in the least. Nobody could. They simply and freely and sentimentally worship them. The strength of the aristocracy is not in the aristocracy at all. It is in the slums. It is not in the House of Lords, it is not in the civil service, it is not in the government offices, and it is not even in the huge and disproportionate monopoly of the English land. It is in a certain spirit. It is in the fact that when a navvy wishes to praise a man, it comes readily to his tongue to say that he has behaved like a gentleman. From a democratic point of view, he might as well say that he has behaved like a viscount. The oligarchic character of the modern English commonwealth does not rest, like many oligarchies, on the cruelty of the rich to the poor. It does not even rest on the kindness of the rich to the poor. It rests on the perennial and unfailing kindness of the poor to the rich. The snobbishness of bad literature, then, is not servile, but the snobbishness of good literature is servile. The old-fashioned halfpenny romance where the duchess sparkled with diamonds was not servile, but the new romance where they sparkle with epigrams is servile. For in thus attributing a special and startling degree of intellect and conversational or controversial power to the upper classes, we are attributing something which is not especially their virtue or even especially their aim. We are, in the words of Disraeli, who, being a genius and not a gentleman, as perhaps primarily to answer for the introduction of this method of flattering the gentry, we are performing the essential function of flattery, which is flattering the people for the qualities they have not got. Praise may be gigantic and insane without having any quality of flattery, so long as it is praise of something that is not noticeably in existence. 
A man may say that a giraffe's head strikes the stars, or that a whale fills the German Ocean, and still be only in a rather excited state about a favorite animal. But when he begins to congratulate the giraffe on his feathers, and the whale on the elegance of his legs, we find ourselves confronted with that social element which we call flattery. The middle and lower orders of London can sincerely, though not perhaps safely, admire the health and grace of the English aristocracy, and this for the very simple reason that the aristocrats are, upon the whole, more healthy and graceful than the poor. But they cannot honestly admire the wit of the aristocrats, and this is for the simple reason that the aristocrats are not more witty than the poor, but a very great deal less so. A man does not hear, as in the smart novels, these gems of verbal felicity drop between diplomatists at dinner. Where he really does hear them is between two omnibus conductors in a block in Holborn. The witty peer whose impromptu fills the books of Mrs. Craggie or Miss Fowler would, as a matter of fact, be torn to shreds in the art of conversation by the first boot-black he had the misfortune to fall foul of. The poor are merely sentimental, and very excusably sentimental, if they praise the gentleman for having a ready hand and ready money. But they are strictly slaves and sycophants if they praise him for having a ready tongue. For that they have far more themselves. The element of oligarchical sentiment in these novels, however, has, I think, another and subtler aspect an aspect more difficult to understand and more worth understanding. The modern gentleman, particularly the modern English gentleman, has become so central and important in these books, and through them in the whole of our current literature and our current mode of thought, that certain qualities of his, whether original or recent, essential or accidental, have altered the quality of our English comedy. In particular, that stoical idea absurdly supposed to be the English ideal, has stiffened and chilled us. It is not the English ideal, but it is to some extent the aristocratic ideal, or it may be only the ideal of aristocracy in its autumn of decay. The gentleman is a stoic because he is a sort of savage, because he is filled with a great elemental fear that some stranger will speak to him. That is why a third-class carriage is a community while a first-class carriage is a place of wild hermits. But this matter, which is difficult, I may be permitted to approach in a more circuitous way. The haunting element of ineffectualness which runs through so much of the witty and epigrammatic fiction fashionable during the last eight or ten years, which runs through such works of a real though varying ingenuity as Dodo, or concerning Isabel Carnaby, or even some emotions and a moral, may be expressed in various ways. But to most of us I think it will ultimately amount to the same thing. This new frivolity is inadequate because there is in it no strong sense of an unuttered joy. The men and women who exchange the repartees may not only be hating each other, but hating even themselves. Any one of them might be bankrupt that day, or sentenced to be shot the next. They are joking, not because they are merry, but because they are not. Out of the emptiness of the heart the mouth speaketh. Even when they talk pure nonsense, it is a careful nonsense, 
a nonsense of which they are economical, or to use the perfect expression of Mr. W. S. Gilbert in Patience, it is such a precious nonsense. Even when they become light-headed, they do not become light-hearted. All those who have read anything of the rationalism of the moderns know that their reason is a sad thing, but even their unreason is sad. The causes of this incapacity are also not very difficult to indicate. The chief of all, of course, is that miserable fear of being sentimental, which is the meanest of all the modern terrors, meaner even than the terror which produces hygiene. Everywhere the robust and uproarious humour has come from the men who were capable not merely of sentimentalism, but a very silly sentimentalism. There has been no humour so robust or uproarious as that of the sentimentalist Steele, or the sentimentalist Stern, or the sentimentalist Dickens. These creatures who wept like women were the creatures who laughed like men. It is true that the humour of Micawber is a good literature, and that the pathos of Little Nell is bad, but the kind of man who had the courage to write so badly in the one case is the kind of man who would have the courage to write so well in the other. The same unconsciousness, the same violent innocence, the same gigantic scale of action, which brought the Napoleon of comedy his Jenna, brought him also his Moscow. And herein is especially shown the frigid and feeble limitations of our modern wits. They make violent efforts, they make heroic and almost pathetic efforts, but they cannot really write badly. There are moments when we almost think that they are achieving the effect, but our hope shrivels to nothing the moment we compare their little failures with the enormous imbecilities of Byron or Shakespeare. For a hearty laugh, it is necessary to have touched the heart. I do not know why touching the heart should always be connected only with the idea of touching it to compassion or sense of distress. The heart can be touched to joy and triumph. The heart can be touched to amusement. But all our comedians are tragic comedians. These later fashionable writers are so pessimistic in bone and marrow that they never seem able to imagine the heart having any concern with mirth. When they speak of the heart, they always mean the pangs and disappointments of the emotional life. When they say that a man's heart is in the right place, they mean, apparently, that it is in his boots. Our ethical societies understand fellowship, but they do not understand good fellowship. Similarly, our wits understand talk, but not what Dr. Johnson has called good talk. In order to have, like Dr. Johnson, a good talk, it is emphatically necessary to be, like Dr. Johnson, a good man, to have friendship and honor and an abysmal tenderness. Above all, it is necessary to be openly and indecently humane, to confess with fullness all the primary pities and fears of Adam. Johnson was a clear-headed, humorous man, and therefore he did not mind talking seriously about religion. Johnson was a brave man, one of the bravest that ever walked, and therefore he did not mind avowing to anyone his consuming fear of death. The idea that there is something English in the repression of one's feelings is one of those ideas which no Englishman ever heard of until England began to be governed exclusively by Scotchmen, Americans, and Jews. At the best, the idea is a generalization from the Duke of Wellington, who was an Irishman. At the worst, it is a part of that silly Teutonism, which knows as little about England 
as it does about anthropology, but which is always talking about Vikings. As a matter of fact, the Vikings did not repress their feelings in the least. They cried like babies and kissed each other like girls. In short, they acted in that respect like Achilles and all strong heroes, the children of the gods. And though the English nationality has probably not much more to do with the Vikings than the French nationality or the Irish nationality, the English have certainly been the children of the Vikings in the matter of tears and kisses. It is not merely true that all the most typically English men of letters, like Shakespeare and Dickens, Richardson and Thackeray, were sentimentalists. It is also true that all the most typically English men of action were sentimentalists, if possible, more sentimental. In the great Elizabethan age, when the English nation was finally being hammered out, in the great 18th century, when the British Empire was being built up everywhere, where, in all these times, where was this symbolic, stoical Englishman who dresses in drab and black and represses his feelings? Were all the Elizabethan paladins and pirates like that? Were any of them like that? Was Grenville concealing his emotions when he broke wine glasses to pieces with his teeth and bit them till the blood poured down? Was Essex restraining his excitement when he threw his hat into the sea? Did Raleigh think it sensible to answer the Spanish guns only, as Stevenson says, with a flourish of insulting trumpets? Did Sidney ever miss an opportunity of making a theatrical remark in the whole course of his life and death? Were even the Puritans Stoics? The English Puritans repressed a good deal, but even they were too English to repress their feelings. It was by a great miracle of genius, assuredly, that Carlyle contrived to admire simultaneously two things so irreconcilably opposed as silence and Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell was the very reverse of a strong, silent man. Cromwell was always talking when he was not crying. Nobody, I suppose, will accuse the author of grace abounding of being ashamed of his feelings. Milton, indeed, it might be possible to represent as a Stoic, in some sense he was a Stoic, just as he was a prig and a polygamist and several other unpleasant and heathen things. But when we have passed that great and desolate name, which may really be counted an exception, we find the trade of English emotionalism immediately resumed and unbroken continuous. Whatever may have been the moral beauty of the passions of Etheridge and Dorset, Sedley and Buckingham, they cannot be accused of the fault of fastidiously concealing them. Charles II was very popular with the English because, like all the jolly English kings, he displayed his passions. William the Dutchman was very unpopular with the English because, not being an Englishman, he did hide his emotions. He was, in fact, precisely the ideal Englishman of our modern theory, and precisely for that reason all the real Englishmen loathed him like leprosy. With the rise of the great England of the 18th century, we find this open and emotional tone still maintained in letters and politics, in arts and in arms. Perhaps the only quality which was possessed in common by the great Fielding and the great Richardson was that neither of them hid their feelings. Swift, indeed, was hard and logical because Swift was Irish. And when we pass to the soldiers and the rulers, the patriots and the empire builders of the 18th century, 
we find, as I have said, that they were, if possible, more romantic than the romancers, more poetical than the poets. Chatham, who showed the world all his strength, showed the House of Common all his weakness. Wolfe walked about the room with a drawn sword, calling himself Caesar and Hannibal, and went to death with poetry in his mouth. Clive was a man of the same type as Cromwell or Bunyan, or, for the matter of that, Johnson. That is, he was a strong, sensible man, with a kind of running spring of hysteria and melancholy in him. Like Johnson, he was all the more healthy, because he was morbid. The tales of the admirals and adventures of that England are full of braggadocio, of sentimentality, of splendid affection. But it is scarcely necessary to multiply examples of the essentially romantic Englishman, when one example towers above them all. Mr. Rudyard Kipling has said complacently of the English, We do not fall on the neck and kiss when we come together. It is true that this ancient and universal custom has vanished with some modern weakening of England. Sidney would have thought nothing of kissing Spencer. But I willingly concede that Mr. Broderick would not be likely to kiss Mr. Arnold Foster, if that be any proof of the increased manliness and military greatness of England. But the Englishman who does not show his feelings has not altogether given up the power of seeing something English in the great sea hero of the Napoleonic War. You cannot break the legend of Nelson, and across the sunset of that glory is written in flaming letters forever the great English sentiment, Kiss me, Hardy. This ideal of self-repression, then, is, whatever else it is, not English. It is, perhaps, somewhat Oriental. It is slightly Prussian. But in the main it does not come, I think, from any racial or national source. It is, as I have said in some sense, aristocratic. It comes not from a people, but from a class. Even the aristocracy, I think, was not quite so stoical in the days when it was really strong. But whether this unemotional ideal be the genuine tradition of the gentleman, or only one of the inventions of the modern gentleman, who may be called the decayed gentleman, it certainly has something to do with the unemotional quality of these society novels. From representing aristocrats as people who suppress their feelings, it has been an easy step to representing aristocrats as people who had no feelings to suppress. Thus the modern oligarchist has made a virtue for the oligarchy of the hardness as well as the brightness of the diamond. Like a sonneteer addressing his lady in the 17th century, he seems to use the word cold almost as a eulogium, and the word heartless as a kind of compliment. Of course, in people so incurably kind-hearted and babyish as are the English gentry, it would be impossible to create anything that can be called positive cruelty. So in these books they exhibit a sort of negative cruelty. They cannot be cruel in acts, but they can be so in words. All this means one thing, and one thing only. It means that the living and invigorating ideals of England must be looked for in the masses. It must be looked for where Dickens found it, Dickens among whose glories it was to be a humorist, to be a sentimentalist, to be an optimist, to be a poor man, to be an Englishman, but the greatest of whose glories was that he saw all mankind in its amazing and tropical luxuriance, 
and did not even notice the aristocracy. Dickens, the greatest of whose glories, was that he could not describe a gentleman. End of chapter 15